try to get a clinic appointment in, in an oncology clinic in a major metropolitan area in the United States, you find that the appointments are backed up. That it could be months rather than weeks to, to get an appointment. I've heard this from a, a few places. The idea that a new product like the vaccines could cause cancer is not something that's going to be observable overnight. That cancer as a disease takes a long time to manifest itself from when it starts, from the first cells that go haywire until they grow to be large enough to be diagnosed or to be symptomatic can take anywhere from two or three years for the blood cancers like leukemias and lymphomas to five years for lung cancer to 20 years for bladder cancer or 30, 35 years for colon cancer and so on. So these are long-term events and if you have suddenly introduce a new product like the vaccines, the first thing you might expect to see would be the blood cancers that I mentioned, but not the other kinds of cancers. And so what clinicians have been seeing, however, is very strange things. For example, 25-year-olds with colon cancer who, who don't have family histories of the disease. That's basically impossible along the known paradigm for how colon cancer works. And, and other long latency cancers that they're seeing in very young people. This is just not the normal occurrence uh, of how cancer works. And so there has to be some initiating stimulus to why this happens. In my opinion, cancer is something that the body normally fights off because the cells that get created when they go haywire, the immune system mostly recognizes and is, manages to gobble them up or disable them so that they don't progress. But if you damage the immune system in a way that limits the ability to recognize or to disable newly growing deranged cancer cells, then that opens the door to them multiplying to the point where it's beyond the immune system to cope. And that's the mechanism I think that's the most likely here. That we know that the vaccines, the COVID vaccines, have done various degrees of damage to the immune system in, in a fraction of people who've taken them. And that damage could be anywhere from getting COVID more often, getting other infectious diseases, and perhaps it may also be cancer in the longer term. So we're seeing these long latency cancers. We're also seeing cancers like breast cancer. So breast cancer typically is a disease when a, a woman has a detected lesion, a spot in, in the breast, and that's removed or biopsied. And then it, it's treated and it goes into remission and sits around quiescent in the body for 20 or 25 years before it may recur. Mm. And then what we're seeing is, however, vaccinated women who are suddenly, in short, relatively short periods of time, re-manifesting their quiescent breast cancers. That's in the realm of possible, just like the, the blood cancers could be in the time frame of two or three years after the vaccines. So those are the initial signals that we've been seeing. And because these cancers have been occurring in people who are too young to get them, basically, compared to the normal way it works, they've been designated as turbo cancers. Some of these cancers are so aggressive that between the time that they're first seen and when they present, can they come back for treatment after a few weeks, they've grown dramatically compared to what oncologists would have expected for the way cancer normally progresses. And so that's part of the motivation for calling them turbo cancers. We don't know how big this problem is. It's not certainly not universal, but is it a real problem? Potentially, yes. And so one needs to be just cognizant of it and paying attention to of it. And as the American Cancer Society has said for so long, be attuned to your body that any changes that don't make sense to you in your body, follow them up. That's the best recommendation.
So there isn't population level surveillance on this because you would imagine that, that there probably is very good population level surveillance on this. The problem is connecting the cancer occurrence to the vaccinated state. That the population surveillance for cancer is good because cancer is a reportable disease. It's 1933 in Connecticut anyway. And, but knowing which people have been vaccinated and when they were vaccinated compared to the cancers is very weak data if, if it exists at all. So there might be reports in the VAERS database about cancers, but again, if this is happening two years after vaccination, how are you gonna lay the claim that this was caused by something two years in the past? It's, it's difficult to make those connections. Fascinating. Well, the other, the other issue is, you know, you mentioned breast cancer, you know, coming back that, that was treated in some way at some point. But there was also this whole phenomenon early in the pandemic that a lot of this kind of surveillance type work or just as assessing mammograms, that kind of, so it was simply not done, right? Because the hospitals were locked down, right? And so how much would that play into this, the turbo cancer question? I think that it's unlikely to affect the turbo cancer question. It's more likely to affect a, a bump in cancer diagnoses after the lockdowns were lifted and people were more psychologically prepared to go back into public spaces and clinics um, and make their appointments and, and, and attend their appointments. So there would have been a, a bump, a wave in that period, but not long stretching into now, you know, years later, I think that, and the behaviors of the cancers, as I said, they're more aggressive is something that would be unexpected and, and not related to that. Don't forget to subscribe to our alerts newsletter and you'll never miss an episode. vaccines and it seems, it's a great, it seems to be a great interest of yours I challenge you to make that to debate me on it and I'm going to tell you just what my position is and my position is not any science my position is exactly aligned with the National Academy of Science and the Institute of Medicine people don't know my position because people call me an anti-vaxxer but I'm not I'm pro-vaccine I had all my children vaccinated I believe the vaccine should be tested, safety tested. People don't know. You cannot sue a company that, that makes vaccines that injures you. No matter how egregious the injury is, no matter how negligent that company was, no matter how toxic the ingredient. Furthermore, they're completely insulated, so there's no incentive for them to make vaccines safe. Furthermore, they're also exempt. They're the only medicine that's exempt from, from safety testing. So now one of the 72 vaccines currently given to our children, mandated, has ever been tested against a placebo. That means nobody knows what the risk profile is and nobody can say with a scientific certainty that that vaccine is averting more problems than it causes. And I don't think that we ought to be mandating medical interventions for unwilling Americans unless we know precisely that that vaccine is going to end up hating, helping people rather than hurting them. The Institute of Medicine is the ultimate arbiter of vaccine science, according to Congress and HHS. And the Institute of Medicine has 
time and again in They call it a doom loop, and that means that the remedy is as bad as the malady. So the malady is that 25% to 30% of the downtown is empty uh, as far as office space. People do not want to go there. The federal government just said that people should not come into San Francisco to work at federal government buildings because it's too dangerous. So businesses are leaving from Whole Earth to Walmarts to Nords, you name them, they're leaving. And they're leaving because they're suffering unsustainable uh, larceny, shoplifting, outright thievery losses. And they're leaving because they can't do anything about it. And they're leaving because the police won't come or can't come or there's not enough of them. And so the revenue is leaving. And it's not a question anymore of defunding the police. It's funding the police. You don't have any money. So how do you stop the doom loop? Do you raise taxes and then you further alienate businesses? Do you borrow the money to hire policemen to Gavin Newsom right that you bring in the National Guard? Imagine a guy running for president that was mayor just recently of the city and now he says you have to bring in federal National Guardsmen to keep the order when he was the mayor. And he won't voice one word of criticisms about the policy that he or his successors embrace that caused this problem. It's not like this is El Paso, you know, or it's a place where, you know, Lincoln, Nebraska, I'm not making fun of those places, but as far as the weather and the scenery and the ocean, it's a beautiful city. So it's very hard to destroy it. And yet they did it in just three or four years, which is something. They did the same thing to Portland. They did the same thing to Seattle, Minneapolis, Los Angeles. They do it to anything they touch. They have the unmitous touch. And what do you mean by that, Victor? I mean, they raise taxes on the people who work and play by the rules. They pay the taxes. They insult them. They glorify or romanticize violence. They have decriminalized the, the legal code. So if you steal under nine, $950, you can do that every day. And it's just going to be a bunch of misdemeanors and they're not going to do anything to you. They make fun of the people who play by the rules. They have no respect for human life. And the only thing that's weird about San Francisco and Los Angeles, these places, they keep attacking and insulting the productive element of society. They make fun of meritocracy, so they get rid of it at low, low high school. 
They make fun of classical art, so they wash over murals. They pass laws that are so restrictive that no one can follow them who wants to build a home or improve or remodel his house. They uh, they have a bill in the legislature. They're going to strip the right of individual elected school board members to remove obscene material because they quote, it's supposedly quote unquote inclusive. So what do you do with all that? And the answer is people are leaving in droves. And so it's in a doom loop and no one has the guts to stop it. They know what they're doing. They recall uh, Mr. Boudin and London Breed, who was caught like Newsom without a mask as she hectored everybody to wear them, is saying now she wishes she could lower taxes. But they killed the golden goose. And it's a miserable place to live. So if any of you are listening and you want to go to downtown San Francisco, how do you get there? You take the Muni or the BART and you want to know if is it dangerous? Well, they, they, they will not release videos of people who go out and attack people because that might stereotype the criminal so that you could, I guess, profile them. Can't do that. So then you're going to say, I'm going to drive to San Francisco, Victor. Yeah, okay. So if you park anywhere near the downtown, you're, somebody's going to break into your car and steal everything and the police are not going to come. Well, I'll roll down the windows. Maybe they'll just rifle through it. Well, I'll open the glove compartment. I'll open the trunk too. And I'll put a sign saying nothing's here. Well, that might work for a while. And then what are you going to do when you park? You're going to go into your building. You're going to step over some homeless person that is a victim. And if they stand up and say, don't get near me, and they come at you drug-addled, what are you going to do? Are you going to push them down, push them away, call the police? Or as you're going into your office, you're stepping and you smell something, you look at the bottom of your f shoes and there's human excrement or a piece of uh, drug paraphernalia, a broken needle stuck to the side of your shoes. Is that what you want? Everybody says, no, I don't need that. Not with 13.3 income tax rate in California. What's very funny about these people is they created all this. And they made a desert, as I said, and they called it civilization. And now they don't want to live in it. And they don't wonder what's wrong. And then they wonder why people don't like them. And so that's what how they think. And they're in a complete bubble. There's a backlash against all of this. Trump is part of it. Not, he's not it, but he's part of it. And the left just keeps pushing. The final arbiter is always reality. And the reality is, would most people like to live in San Francisco, enjoy all the elements of that beautiful city and that vibrant culture? Or would they rather live in Bend or Oregon? Or would they rather live in Reno, Nevada or St. George, Utah? And the answer is the latter. They don't want to live there anymore. And these are not right wing people all, always. So they created their Frankensteinian monster that's devouring them. I don't know when wisdom comes, at what point wisdom comes of these people. History suggests that people are quite capable of destroying their culture and committing collective suicide before they understand what they're doing. Look at Detroit. People knew what was going on in Detroit as they destroyed that beautiful city, and yet they couldn't stop themselves. But the problem is the moral caliber, the moral failing of society, and nobody wants to address that. I don't know if it's a lack of religion or a belief in a divine hereafter, transcendent, that seems to be on the wane. Uh, I don't know whether it's the, the lack of deterrence so they don't fear any punishment anymore. But we're coming to a point where it's this is not just a philosophical abstract discussion. This is about how you actually drive, get out of your car, go to work, eat, function, get on a plane that's safe or not. And the are not is now very likely, I think. It's starting to 
unravel, at least in these blue cities. It's going to be very fascinating because in this next election, what are the people in the blue cities going to be saying? I love what Portland is. I love what San Francisco is, or I'm going to vote for what we did to San Francisco, even though I moved to Tennessee. It's going to be interesting to see. It's part of a larger trend of decivilization. That's a good word to know. We use decolonization. Let's have a new word called decivilization. And it's everywhere with the left today. Smash and grab. Soros uh, prosecutors don't decriminalize the statutes, defund the police, turn over large swaths of the inner city and downtown to homeless people, and let the let's get rid of natural gas. Let the Chinese build coal plants at two or three a month, but we'll we'll cut back on clean burning. That's what we're doing. You can see it in our schools where we're. There's a, ma- a new math statute that says basically we're not going to teach algebra in these hard courses because they're discriminatory against people of color. We'll go back to math as it existed in 1850, and that will be really good. And then when somebody in, in the popular culture says, "Hey, my cell phone is not what I want," or "I downloaded something that doesn't work," or "I tried to play a video game and it was a poor quality," well, you said, "Well, you got rid of algebra and calculus and math. What'd you expect?" That's what they are. They're decivilizationers. And I got myself undressed. I ain't ready for the altar, but I do agree there's times when a woman sure can be a friend of mine. This revolution that we are in the midst of is holistic. It's not a political revolution like 1776. It's more like the French Revolution of 1789, or I think a really close to Mao's second revolution, the Cultural Revolution. By that I mean it's holistic. It's not about politics. It's not about Trump or conservatives versus Biden and Democrats. It's not about whether you want to spend this amount of money or that amount of money. It's more than that. It's that, but it's more than that. It spans every aspect of our being, and I mean that literally. Nobody listening to this right now. If I had said ten years ago, mark my words, I'm a prophet. Ten years from now, there will be three sexes, and if you listener dare say that there are only two, you're going to be ostracized and fired from your job. Nobody would believe it. If I said ten years ago, we're going to ban cooktops that run on natural gas, natural gas heaters, and we're going to Ban V8 engines very quickly because we have to transition by forcing the middle class to take a big hit on green energy. No one would believe it. If I said to you, professors, if you professors get up in class and you say that you want the border closed or you believe that biological men should not compete in female sports, or if you say the case has not been made that government has the ability without catastrophic. Results in a cost-benefit analysis to address climate change. You're going to lose your job. Say any of those three, you're out. They wouldn't believe you. If I said ten years ago there is no border, it's not that the border is porous like it was under Obama. It's not that federal immigration law is lax. There is no border. It's been destroyed. There is no corpus of federal immigration law. Seven million people have crossed the border. 
And it's our duty to put them up in hotels through all of our major cities, give them a cell phone, waive any legal consequences for their continued illegal residence in the United States and more to come. And we're going to be told by the Mexican government that it is our duty to treat their citizens as if they were our. Nobody would believe that. If I said 10 years ago, 70% of the people who vote will not vote any longer on election day. We're going to go from 30% absentee to 70. And we're not going to use the word absentee. We're going to call it mail-in balloting or early ballot. And the rejection rate of those ballots is going to plummet because we're going to change the voting laws so radically that it's almost impossible to authenticate a mail-in ballot vis-a-vis a registered name on a registrar's list. Nobody would believe that. Nobody would believe that. If I said... There's going 10 years ago, there's going to be a riot. It's not going to be like the Watts riots or the Rodney King riots or the riots that followed Martin Luther King. There's going to be 120 days. There's going to be $2 billion in damage. They're going to torch a federal courthouse, a police precinct, a historic church in Lafayette Square. They're going to try to get to the White House and nobody's going to pay a price for that. It's going to be pretty much fine. If I said... In addition to all this, then four consecutive FBI directors are either going to lie under oath to Congress or to a federal investigator, or they're going to deny and claim amnesia things that they knew were true, whether Mueller or Comey or McCabe or Ray. Nobody would believe me. If I said the FBI 10 years ago, if I said the FBI will be caught hiring Twitter to suppress news, so they can warp the 2020 election, nobody would believe me. If I said 10 years ago, hey, just watch this, this upcoming 2016 election, the 2020 and the 2024 election, the FBI and the DOJ are going to warp. In 2016, they're going to concoct this lie that Donald Trump urinated on prostitutes because he was mad at Obama, who stayed in the same hotel room, and he wanted it known that he did that to the sheets and that he was working for Vladimir Putin. And that will be a complete lie. And we will doctor FISA affidavits if we have to. We will hire foreign nationals to work on the Clinton campaign if we have to. We will do anything we have to. Nobody would believe it. If I said in 2020, the candidate for president's son who's committed several felonies, many of which in action, and in medias rebus are on the computer. And to stop that from being known, the FBI is going to take it, hide it for a year, and then tell Twitter not to put any news out other than it's a Russian disinformation ploy. It's not authentic, even though when they, nobody would believe it. If I were to say 10 years ago, they're going to indict an ex-president of the United States for taking out documents that there was a dispute over or for overvaluing his real estate in New York or for having Stormy Daniels sign a non-disclosure that he probably had some tawdry relationship with or that he made a phone call to the attorney general in Georgia complaining that he thought that the voting wasn't going right, looking and having directing him or asking him to go look for things, which the attorney general refused. And he was going to be tried, not impeached again because he's out of office, but tried and looking at 500 likely indictment. Nobody would believe it. 
So what I'm yeah. getting at is whether we look at sex, whether we look at the law, whether we look at the destruction of law, shoplifting, whether we look at the border, whether we look at these weaponized agencies, it's every aspect of our life. person who's listening to this is thinking, if he lives in California, take one example, should I go buy a pickup? When do you think they're going to outlaw it? Should I buy a diesel pickup when they're going to outlaw that? When I get my new home, I can't have a gas cooktop or gas hot water heater in it? That's not allowed. It's cheaper. No, you can't. Could we close the border? No, we can't close the border. No, 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 no. You don't understand. The country has changed in the 10 years. It's in the middle of a cultural revolution and it affects everything. If I had said 10 years ago, hey, did you see, did you see a rerun the other night of um, Kill a Mockingbird? Oh yeah, I love that movie. Gregory Peck, it was so great. Did you know it was racist? No, no, you don't understand. It was it was a courageous movie talking about the evils of race. No, 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 no. It was white supremacy, white paternalism. And we're going to ban that book. Are you insane? And you know what we're not going to ban? We're not going to have graphic novels in K through eight libraries. We're not going to ban that because we need to discuss the normative toxic family model. So nobody would believe any of this. And there's certain people who are sta- that you wouldn't you wouldn't uh, think. I mean, I, I I'm not a big fan of Bill Maher, but man, he he's saying it like it is. I can't believe it. And Matt Taibbi, I think, has attacked me. He says it like it is. I was always a big fan of Megyn Kelly, but I never associated Me- Megyn Kelly with just anger at the nonsense but gosh you listen to her podcast and i've been on a lot of them she just says it like she is she's had it those are the types of profiles that we need that from all across the political spectrum we should all look for those people according to their station and honor them because we really need people to speak out doesn't matter what party it doesn't matter what ideology just this country has so much potential and it's got everything farmland fuel Great military, great, you know, and we're destroying it. This can't go on. You can't have, you can't take a city like San Francisco and destroy it. Or homeless people defecating in front of people or people walking out with stuff that you own in your own store and you can't do anything about it. It just, it can't go on. And we need people to call it out. One of the essentials of citizenship is the presence of the creation and the preservation of a large middle class. This idea goes all the way back to Greece where citizenship first developed. And they had a word for it, the mesoi, M-E-S-O-I. And in their way of thinking, you had to have the majority of citizens self-employed, independent, outspoken, and neither rich nor poor. They felt that if you were poor, you were either going to be dependent on the rich or you were going to be dependent on the state. And therefore, when you spoke out, your views, your opinions somehow would be warped or predicated on what the state wanted you to say or what the rich wanted you to say. And therefore, if you were to vote, you would not be voting in an independent uh, fashion. 
They also felt that the rich should not govern the affairs of the state because they would have too much influence on people by value of their wealth, and they would warp citizens that did not have enough wealth to vote for laws or to say things or to uh, create new laws that would favor a small insider group. But the middle class alone were neither dependent on the state, nor did they emulate or did they envy the rich. And so these Mesoi and the idealized Greek city-state were the citizens that showed up in the assembly hall, they were outside, and they had an equal seat on stone benches. And out of that reinforcement came the idea that the Mesoi were the backbone of the citizenry. The citizen also had to be independent, and that was defined in two ways. One was the word autonomia, which meant they were in control of the laws. They made the laws, and they were not subject to coercion from the poor or the rich. There was another more sophisticated term that denoted economic independence, autarkeia. They were in control of their farm, and that farm gave them sustenance in which they did not have to beg the state for entitlements or charity or handouts from the rich. In other words, in the Mediterranean climate of Greece and Rome, a man with 10 acres could have vines, olives, and wheat. And out of all of those crops, they were economically independent. In this concept, then, you were creating this independent landowner who was economically viable, and he was not dependent or beholden to the wealthy, and he was not dependent on somebody, especially like the poor on the state, anybody being the state government. There was another idea that was very important to the origins of citizenship in the middle class. Society would not then be easily defined by rich and poor, oppressed, oppressor, exploited, exploiter, victimized, victimizer. There was no binary. And most of later Marxist philosophy, remember, or socialism always tried to suggest that history is a story of the oppressed and the oppressor and class conflict. But constitutional government and citizenship that empowers people and turns them loose to create their own economic futures and trajectories and protects their privacy and protects their property through inheritance and laws against confiscation by the wealthy or the state, that empowers a different group. And when you have that middle different group, then you avoid those simplistic binaries. And that's why almost throughout the philosophical tradition, those on the left cannot stand the middle class. They hate the middle class. They say the middle class is corrupt or it's materialistic or it's decadent. But what they're really getting at is the presence of a stable middle class prevents government from getting bigger and bigger and bigger or from to serve the poor that gets bigger and bigger and bigger or it prevents people from getting wealthier and wealthier and wealthier. And so the middle class is always attacked by both the poor and the wealthy. Okay, so middle-class citizenship is crucial in the history of constitutional government. Unfortunately, in our generation, it's eroding, and we can see it erode in a variety of contexts. The first is the average middle-class income until 2017 was static for 10 years. For 10 years, average wages of the middle-class did not rise. And while home ownership 
at the millennium at 2000 had reached about 65%. It was as high as it had ever been in the last 50 years. It still was not as high in the 1970s and 1960s and 1950s when it was up to nearly 70%. And now it's declining back down to 60%. Why is that important? Because the house is the modern representation of the ancient farm. It's something that a person owns. They have investments in it. They're attuned to make sure the house is kept up or their investment will be lost. If you have two houses side by side, one you're renting and one you're owning, the one you're renting, you're not going to worry about painting it. You're not going to worry about fixing the roof. You're not going to worry about remodeling the one that you own are. It's an investment. And that mentality that you're not a renter, you're not a transient. You're stuck in one place and you're responsible for your community and yourself and your family and your home is very important. So in the American and Western concept in the modern age, home ownership became the modern equivalent of the ancient farm. And yet today, home ownership is on the decline. There's other uh, measures of middle-class decline and that's per capita wealth. If you look at the average American, when the average American dies, they usually have less than $10,000 in net worth. I should say 50% of the country dies with less than 10,000 in aggregate wealth. That keeps going down in real dollars every year. Over half of Americans die with credit card debt. If you were to take an ancient analysis of that, you would say that essentially large elements of the middle class have now become serfs. They're indentured. They owe someone money that they cannot pay back and they suffer the consequences. Their buying options are limited. Their choices on how they live are limited. Their chances at home ownership decline simply because they owe a lot of debt. The middle class is never very popular among the rich and the poor. And you can see that in the vocabulary. As a philologist, I always look at the words people use. And whereas in before, middle-class voters and their preferred candidates were said, you know, these are, these are solid choices. These are the uh, yeomen of the state. These are the genuine Americans. Today, they're called clingers, the clingers of Pennsylvania, as our President Obama called them. Hillary Clinton, a candidate for president in 2016, used the term deplorable and irredeemable. Joe Biden used the term chumps and dregs of society. And the idea was that, that as globalization took hold and muscular labor was no longer essential to the American experiment, in other words, you could make, have things made overseas in China or Southeast Asia or Mexico, and the great middle-class territory of the middle west of the United States, Michigan, Ohio, Illinois, Indiana, started to become hollowed out, we confused cause and effect. We said, well, people of the middle class are on drugs, or they're committing suicide, or they're dysfunctional, or they're not worth saving. And we created this vocabulary of disparagement. If they really had any gumption, they'd go to the oil fields, or they'd learn coding. Who needs to assemble? Who needs to manufacture? Who needs to use their arms? And we wrote off an entire section of America, which was the middle class. The erosion of the middle class is something that the ancient philosophers, and indeed our own founding fathers warned about. The erosion of the middle class leads to a society of two classes, wealthy and poor, oppressed and oppressor, 
a binary that's very unstable. And the best word I could use to term it would be medieval. And so we've ended up in our own society doing exactly what we thought would never happen in America. We've taken the middle class, the backbone of citizenship, and we've eroded it and destroyed it. What explains it all? Is there a war against citizens? Is there a desire for illegal immigration, illegal residents? And I think to answer that dilemma, that question that just seems so bizarre, we have to look to who benefits, what the Romans called qui bono. To whom is it of a good thing? To whom is it of advantage for all of these people to come across the southern border illegally? Let's start with the government of Mexico and the governments of Central America. Why would they want young men, mostly, 70% of the people who cross illegally uh, in the last five years have been young men. Why would they want to take their most productive, most healthy, strongest age group cohort and just send them out? It makes no sense. Especially their own demographies are starting to themselves stabilize. I think one reason is that young men tend to be the most opinionated, they tend to be the most muscular, they tend to be the most volatile. And all of these countries are not constitutional governments, with very few exceptions. And they're not fair and equitable societies. And they do not have uh, a Bill of Rights. And they have endemic discrimination against indigenous people. And so one way of ensuring stability to the government elite in Mexico City or the government elite in particular capitals of Central America is to say, you know what? Don't march on Mexico City, march on Texas. It's a safety valve, in other words. But even more importantly is this idea of remittances. It's kind of a fancy word. It means that when you leave your country, you go to the United States, you earn money, and you send money back. At first, it was quite small in the 1960s, 1970s, but when you have 20 million people residing here illegally, and you have probably another 10 million who are legal residents, and you're up to nearly 40 million people of various statuses that were not born in the United States, and I will say that in my state of California, 27% of the population was not born in the United States. Many of them send wages back to their home country. In the case of Mexico, that is a staggering amount of about $35 billion a year. In the case of all of Central America, it's about $30 billion. Think of it, $65 billion leaves the United States and it becomes the largest source of foreign exchange for the governments uh, south of the border. It gets worse than that in a way, or more ironic, or more deleterious to the American citizen, because to free up that money from impoverished people, that means they have to go work in a meat plant, they work as waiters, they work as cooks, and then they send two or three hundred dollars a week. But who makes up the difference? Who supplies the subsidies so that can free up that cash? The taxpayer does, the citizen does. 
And by that I mean they need housing subsidies, they need legal subsidies, they need education subsidies, they need food subsidies. And through that subsidization of the illegal immigrant, money is freed up to enrich people south of the border. I say enrich because their social services are not equitable, fair, or generous. They rely on remittances as a private substitute for what they should do, be doing publicly by the government. But the illegal entry of millions of people has another deleterious effect, and that is it overtaxes our own social services. So if you have a doctor that treats young children, or you have prenatal care offered to the poor, U.S. citizen poor, all of a sudden you have a wave of people coming in illegally. So in this zero-sum game of allotment, the U.S. citizen has less care, rarer care, and not as good care, simply because the medical system, doctors and nurses, are overwhelmed with people who do not speak English, that have an array of medical problems, and yet cannot afford to pay for their own medical care, and then ironically somehow have money to send back to the tune of $65 billion a year to their home countries. So to answer our question, the governments of Mexico and Central America have a large role to play in illegal immigration that diminishes the sanctity of citizenship for Americans. The second group, though, is us. And this gets more complicated. It's not a political question. If you are a Republican, Chamber of Commerce supporter, corporation, you want workers that will be industrious at the lowest wage possible. So what we've seen for the last 40 years are meatpacking plants, agriculture, hospitality industry, landscaping, says to companies throughout the United States, we've got to band together because we have interest in an open border. Our population, as we've seen in an earlier lecture, is fossilizing. It's static. Our demography is shrinking. We're at 1.8, 1.9 of our replacement. We need young men, especially young women. If they come across the border, no questions asked. They're vulnerable. They're worried about their immigration status. They work very hard. Compared to rural Mexico, the United States is a paradise. They're happy to get wages at three or four times, even though the wages are lower than what we pay American citizens. So the corporate establishment has been a big advocate of open borders. And it's been very hard to write op-eds for the Wall Street Journal or talk to the Chamber of Commerce because they feel that immigration, even if it's illegal, is very good for their own bottom line. Again, how does this hurt the citizen and diminish the idea of citizenship? If you're a U.S. citizen, if you're a resident of the inner city or the barrio or Appalachia, and you don't have a lot of skills yet, and you want to go and get an entry-level job, and you want to get minimum wage, but somebody is hiring somebody off the books from Mexico or Honduras or Guatemala, and they from an impoverished society might even be willing to work under conditions that you would not as a U.S. citizen, then that diminishes your job opportunities. And that's exactly what's happening. There was a time when California elected Ronald Reagan as governor, and then George McMahon, and then Pete Wilson, and then Arnold Schwarzenegger. And it was a diverse political state. We never knew who was going to control the legislature. The congressional delegation was 50-50. Not now. In the last 20 years, we've seen California's delegation that's sent to Congress, about 53 congressmen, anywhere from 7 to 10 to 12 are Republican. The influx 
of people from south of the border under illegal auspices in desperate need of social services and entitlement. And the Democratic Party said, if you come illegally, we will ensure that you will not be subject to the enforcement of immigration laws. We will provide you with entitlements, but we expect in exchange fealty and loyalty and fidelity at the polls. And the children of people who come illegally who were born here in the United States, very controversial word called an anchor baby. That second generation is a voting age. Some of the voting laws are of suspicious uh, nature, that they're very porous, so people of unknown legal status have voted a lot. And California has flipped from a red state to a blue state. Nevada has flipped from a red state to a blue state. Colorado has flipped. New Mexico has flipped. And so in the eyes of the Democratic Party, illegal immigration has been a godsend in the Electoral College. If we were to go back and look at speeches from Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer, Hillary and Bill Clinton, they're quite astounding. They're worried about the American worker, especially the union worker. And they say on the podium again and again, we've got to stop illegal immigration. It's injurious to the American citizen. It lowers the wages. It destroys unions. Cesar Chavez went down to the border himself to ensure the United Farm Workers could help the Border Patrol stop illegal immigration. That has all ended now. And the Democratic Party flipped and became an advocate of open borders. Why? Because of sheer numbers. It's not one or two or three million people are here illegally. As I said, it's over 20 million, and that's not counting legal immigrants. And these are seen as constituents that are remaking the political demography of the United States. So you put all of these forces together, and they're force multiplying of one another, and it explains right why now we do not enforce immigration law. Because too many parties have too many vested interests, and we look at the border, and it is a construct. It doesn't exist in reality. People are simply walking across wherever the wall ends on the border. They walk across, they're greeted, they are caught. We call it catch and release, and they're released. 75% do not show up for hearings, and they live in sanctuary cities. 550 jurisdictions in the United States are immune from federal immigration law. That means if you come here illegally and you live in one of these jurisdictions, then the immigration laws will not be enforced. The federal government uh, will not be able, even if it wants to, to go into a local jail, for example, and extradite somebody on a DUI charge that was arrested by a county sheriff. It's one of the strangest things in the world because it is so illiberal. It resurrects the old Confederate idea of nullification that started the Civil War when South Carolina said, we're not going to obey federal laws and the federal government has no jurisdiction within our confines. And by 1861, 10 other states said, the federal government may have an armory or post office, but we're not going to allow them to override state law. And yet here we are, and we are really amplifying the very reactionary and dangerous idea of nullification. The lesser